Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Julian Archer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for your patience. Lord, we just ask at this time that your Holy Spirit come in here, that you soften our hearts, and that you plant seeds of truth, seeds of love, seeds of inspiration and encouragement that you want specifically for each of us. And may we each open our hearts to you. Lord, please speak through me. May the words all be yours and may all glory be to you is my prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. In the heat of the, the moment yesterday, when we were doing that talk, which was titled Cross-Eyed Christianity, the only thing I forgot to share with you was the cross-eyed Christianity bit. <laughs> a, a temptation that comes with a, with a message like this is basically we want to kick the rich. We want to go, yeah, I knew that was what was wrong with that bloke. I, yeah, yeah, that's... That's that, that rich bloke I know, that's what's wrong with him. That's the problem he's got. And one of the things that I wanted to share yesterday, and we'll, we'll touch on it again today briefly, and just as a reminder, is that we're actually all doing pretty well. We're all doing pretty well. And so if you're going to kick the rich, just give yourself a good, <laughs> a good one as well. Because here in Australia... We're doing pretty well. So I just wanted to share that. I just, don't, I just don't want people to go away thinking that it's about someone else. This message is about me and it's about you. It's about every child of God. But specifically, it's about those who God has materially blessed. Let's go to Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. We, I won't go through it in detail, but remember we had the passage where Jesus says, Do not lay up treasures on earth. And then we skip down to a section where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. But right in the middle there in Matthew 6, verses 22 and 23, he says this, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And you know, I could not work out why Jesus would talk about our eyes sandwiched between a thing on treasures and a thing on not being able to serve God and money. What have our eyes got to do with that? And so I went to the commentaries and the commentaries all told me, and I believe rightly so, that Jesus was showing that it's actually through our eyes that we covet. It's through our eyes that we see things that we want. It's through our eyes that we are distracted from our relationship with Christ. And I thought, yeah, excellent, that's good reasoning. But then I re-looked re at the, the texts again, and it was all about, don't store up your treasures on earth, store up your treasures in heaven. And I realized that what I'd been doing for many years was going through life with one eye on my heavenly treasures and one eye on my earthly treasures. And I was a cross-eyed Christian. And I was wondering why I was stumbling and stumbling and stumbling. And it was because my eyes were crossed. 
We're going to talk more about that on Friday, but I just thought I'd give you the background of the cross-eyed Christianity. Let's have a quick, quick reminder for those of you who may not have been here yesterday. Uh, I'm just going to go very briefly. Remember we looked at this? The seesaw, faith and finance. As the per capita income of adults goes up in a nation, the interest in religion on a daily basis goes down. So we, we, it's, a, it's a seesaw. I won't go into that in detail again. You've seen that. We saw that Australia, uh, we, us, Australian adults, second richest adults in the world after Switzerland. But two-thirds of us have no interest in religion on a daily basis. We looked at this, John Wesley's quote, wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things must beget riches. And riches naturally begets pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. Today I want to look at a thing called the half-life. You guys know what a half-life is? You know what it is in physics? The time required for half of a substance to undergo decay. We talk about radioactive half-lives and different things, but basically if I had a kilogram of ice in my hands and I just held it there and an hour later there was half a kilogram of ice because the rest had melted away, it has a half-life of one hour. And in some things, in physics, that is a continuous curve, a half-life. Does satisfaction have a half-life? Does satisfaction have a half-life? If it did, it would be the time required for half the enjoyment and satisfaction in a single purchase, achievement or activity to undergo decay. So when you buy your first car, you're a young person, you've got your first car, and you look at those wheels, all $2,000 worth of those wheels, and you look at them and you go, <laughs> and you know, you can, you can come back to that car three years later and go, <laughs> my wheels. You know, woo, look at them, they're a symphony in steel. But when you buy your fifth Aston Martin or your third Ferrari, the interest that you have in that car, yeah, it might last three months, four months, five months. And the more you have, the shorter the half-life of that satisfaction and you look for more and more and more, faster and faster and faster. Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I won't go into it in detail, you know Ecclesiastes. This guy, Solomon, who had everything. He's, he was the richest man who has ever lived, still in today's dollars. When, when Solomon, sorry, when David left Solomon, some gold and silver for the temple, the gold alone was worth $100 billion in today's money. Okay? Bill Gates is currently worth about $70 billion. That was just the gold that his father had left him for his temple. He also left him a phenomenal amount of silver as well and a whole lot of other things. The richest man who has ever lived denied himself. He admits this himself when he's about 80 years of age. He says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Was he satisfied? No. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless 
I remember a preacher one day, he'd, he, uh, he had this way of, of reading Ecclesiastes. He'd go through it, and uh, I won't turn to it now, but he'd say, you know, uh, and, and I looked at all the work that my hands had done, and it was... And I looked at all that I had achieved, and it was... So everywhere the word meaningless was, because he was saying that in the Hebrew or whatever language that was in, we don't actually have an English word to, to show the, the, meaning, the depth of meaninglessness of that word. And so that's what he was doing. So that's what Solomon was saying, looking back over his life. In Leviticus, we're told, if you don't obey my commands, you will eat but not be satisfied. Back in Ecclesiastes, he who loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. I was talking to one of you yesterday who came up to me and said that one of your clients has just sold a, an expensive business. I won't go into the details because some of you may know the client or whatever, but they'd sold a business, hundreds of millions of dollars. And what was their goal? To make billions. Never satisfied. And I challenge you this morning, would you be satisfied if you had $100 million? Would you be satisfied? <laughs> okay, let's keep moving on. <laughs> I love this quote. The man who has God and $100 million has no more than he who has God alone. Isn't that powerful? The man or woman who has God and everything has no more than he or she who has God alone. It's beautiful. I want to show a video called Skipping Stones. Self-explanatory, so I'll let it roll. I'm Arch, and I'm in Copenhagen, Denmark, for the 200-year anniversary of the Christian philosopher Søren Kierkegaard. I first heard about Kierkegaard when I was a 20-year-old fitness addict. I didn't know anything about philosophy, but I knew that it couldn't possibly be as exciting as street skating in peak hour traffic or homemade bungee jumping. But the thing is that for Kierkegaard's philosophy, it just struck me. One of his analogies is still with me today. You see, Kierkegaard said, that the aesthetic stage of life, that's the years of life when you're earning well and you're zipping from one pleasure to the next, finding satisfaction in entertainment and travel and acquisitions and, and so many other things that the world offers. He said that those years, in those years, we are like a stone skipping across the surface of a pond. The, the stone seems to move forward with speed and grace and, and beauty. And it's, it's fueled by the narcotic of of uh, the joy of life and it's thrilled by the energy it feels that every time it touches onto the surface and skips off again. It's just having a great time. But as it progresses, it starts to find less and less enjoyment in each touch and, and it needs to have more and more and more touches, faster and faster and faster, to, in order to maintain the satisfaction, in order to maintain the momentum that it needs to stay on the surface of life. But finally, the sports and movies and holidays and acquisitions lose their satisfaction. They no longer satisfy and the stone starts to sink down, down, down into the unavoidable despair and depression 
that, that must come for any life that is built on the temporary experiences that we so often build our lives on. And then it hits the mud, hits the bottom, and lying on its back in the muddy darkness, it's looking upwards, no longer forwards, and it cries out to God for help. And God answers. Maybe it's the only time that God can answer because it's often the only time that we cry out for help. And it's God who picks us up, washes us off, and puts us back on the path. Where are you at? Are you skipping along through life, through the joy of life, enjoying all the wonderful experiences and, and living every day on a high? Or are you sinking, wondering where the joy and the, and the, the wonder of, of those skips that you used to have went to? Or are you lying in the mud? I think I've experienced all three. But it's only recently that I've realised that I can actually maintain my momentum, I can maintain my skips on the surface of life, but only, only when God is the energy, when God is the source of my momentum. You see, too often in my life I've expended my energy and my time on the skips instead of on the skipper. What about you? For those of you who are wondering about the homemade bungee jumping, uh, it did actually occur, we did that at Avondale College. Uh, we found some big bits of rubber down in the bush. We still have no idea what they were. They were like two big rubber bands and we would tie them to the F1 highway bridge over Dora Creek, tie them to the rail, and then you'd stand up on the rail as all the traffic, two lanes of traffic were flying past at 110, and you'd jump off into the Dora, holding onto this rubber band. And these rubber bands were so strong that they would fling you back up out of the water and you had to turn upside down so that your feet would hit the bridge and not your head. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. And uh, the downside was that when you were hanging in the water and you let go of those rubber bands, they would actually fly straight up out of the water and across both lanes of the highway and smack down on the bitumen and then go back into the creek. So you had to time it between the cars and, and all the rest. But anyway, you're only young and sensible once, aren't you? <laughs> this book you can see there is written by Rabbi Harold S. Kushner from New York, a guy who worked, hey, he was Jewish and he was in New York. You can tell who he was working with. He was working with some very, very wealthy people. And he wrote this book, When All You've Ever Wanted Isn't Enough, The Search for a Life That Matters. You can see that copy is pretty tattered. I forget how many times I've read it, but every time I read it, I put the date in the front and I would underline it and mark it with a different coloured pen. And then I gave it to my dad. And when he'd read it, he'd underline it with a different pen and write his comments in a different coloured pen. And then we'd lend, lend it to another friend in business who would then go through and, and do the same, and all these different coloured pens and all these different comments. And I tell you what, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a treasure in, in my life because it shows a journey of what was happening to me when I was finding, as I went through life, that all I ever wanted wasn't actually enough. When all you ever wanted isn't enough. In the book, Kushner talks about snowflakes, and uh, I'm sorry it's a little bit warm here to use the, that illustration, but so we're going to use bubbles instead. Kushner in his book says that satisfaction and the pursuit of pleasure is like a snowflake that looks so beautiful as it floats to earth, but disappears the instant you try to take hold of it. That's what Solomon said too. 
for most of the chapters of his book until he concluded and found something that does satisfy. When you finally get all you want, will it be enough? Being a sales and marketing manager for a company that was selling into about 25 countries, I spent a lot of time in airports. And during those years, I spent a lot of time in duty-free malls, duty-free shopping centres. And you guys know that those shopping centres are so designed with the best of psychology that the marketers, the, the world's biggest brands, arrange those things, the smells, the sounds, the sensations, the posters, the videos, the colours, the gold, the glitz, the glimmer, the shine, the whole lot to attract you. Fortunately for me, I grew up in a fairly frugal family and so I didn't have a whole lot of interest in the latest luggage or the latest electronics or whatever. I was a non-drinker, non-smoker, so I got through those sections, no problem. But there was one thing that I had a bit of a passion for, a bit of a weakness for, and that was luxury watches. The watch that I had a particular passion for in my, the early years of business, back in the mid-90s, was from a brand called Targ Hoya. You may know the Targ brand, they usually advertise it with uh, Formula One drivers or sportsmen and, you know, really chiselled, good-looking guys. And, you know, when I saw the ad, I thought, man, if I buy one of those watches, that's me. That's how I'll look. And uh, whereas, in, in reality, it was actually the Seiko ads that made me want to buy a Targ Hoya because the Seiko ads told me that you can judge a man by his watch. Isn't that true? You can judge a man by his watch. No, it's not. But that's what the ads told me. And I sort of believed them and I had to say to myself, well, what does my, I haven't got it on, $80 watch say about me? When I go traveling around the world and I'm trying to do these business deals with people who are really, living really expensive lifestyles and wearing their Breitlings and their Rolexes and their Patek Philippe's and all the rest of it, what does my $80 watch say about me? I need one of those Targ Hoyas. And it was about two and a half, three thousand dollars for this watch, which at the time was a pretty significant part of my income. And I thought, no, I can't, can't really afford it. We were newly married, and like, no, no, we've got other things to spend it on. Time went on, we got involved with Adra, and I still had a passion for this Targ Hoyer watch. We were back in business again after that, and I still really wanted this watch. And I thought, well, I know there's better things that I could do with that money. Hey, I've worked with Adra. I know there's better things I could do with the money. There's people with real needs. But, Lord, if you bless the business so that my income gets to X, Y, Z next year, then I'll go be able to go and buy that watch with your blessing. You're laughing because you can relate to that or because it's stupid. <laughs> so, Protestant work ethic, work hard, God blesses. Because if God didn't want me to buy the watch, he wouldn't have blessed the businesses. God blessed the businesses, so I went off to buy the watch. 
at the duty-free counter. There it is. There's my watch. It's a, it's a, a, a sapphire blue face with a, a silver-coated sort of bezel dial around the outside of it. It came with a beautiful silver look-at-me sort of band on it. And it also came with a black silicon band, so it was great for mountain biking, so it doesn't bang on your wrist when you're going downhill. It was the perfect watch. And I looked at it there. Here I go. God's blessed. Here it is. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't buy it. I was like, Lord, what do you want from me? It's, it's only a watch, and it's such a small part of my income. Such a small part. Ah, walked away, stressed because of this desire. And I went on for months and months and months, and then I, it hit me. Lord, here's the deal. Next year, I'm going to give XYZ dollars to charity, to mission, to your work around the world, and then I'll be able to justify spending that little bit of money on my watch. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. <laughs> so off I went. We worked hard. God blessed and blessed and blessed. Just to give you an idea, the, the business I was in at the time grew 70% compound every year for six years. Okay, we had a tiger by the tail. We couldn't hang on, we couldn't let go, but God was blessing, blessing, blessing. Fantastic. Gave the money away, went off to the watch shop, finally with peace of mind that I could buy this watch. Walked up to it. There it is. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Lord, what more do you want from me? For months, because I'm going through these airports all the time, and I would, I would look away. I wouldn't go near the watch section. I wouldn't, I'd go straight through the duty-free section. I wouldn't look at the ads. I wouldn't pick up the in-flight magazines, because you know what all the front pages of those are all about, watches. And I, just, I would just focus and go, no, Lord, I, I'm getting this desire out of my heart. I'm going to do this. And, and it didn't work. It didn't work. And I, I went, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, remove this desire from my heart because there is nothing that I can do to get this stupid little bit of Chinese-made metal. I don't know, sorry, it's probably German or something, but I think it's, maybe it's made in China, I don't know. Uh, couldn't get this piece of metal and plastic out of my heart. It was a desire. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a want or a need, it was a desire. In 2008, I was walking through the airport it was the 10th of June, 2008. I was catching flight QF97 to Hong Kong from Brisbane. And I thought, I'm going to go and look at those watches. And I walked over there and I looked down and there was my watch. And a massive smile came over my face. The girl behind the counter must have thought that I was a sure sale. Never had she seen somebody react to a watch so happily. And I just stood there and, and I felt absolutely nothing for that watch. Absolutely nothing. I went off to the side, pulled out my little yellow notebook that we've always carried in business wherever we go. A short pencil's better than a long memory. And I, I started to write down, and I wrote this, 10 a.m., 10th of June, 2008, I've been too focused on money and business and wealth creation, so I've been asking God for a cleaned heart and mind. 
As much as I speak out against the devil's attractions of materialism, I really have been in its clutches, even without spending much. The devil's had my mind, but not my wallet. I can hardly believe what just happened. After years of drooling over Tag Heuer watches and an equally long time agonizing over my seeming inability to bring myself to buy one, I just walked up to the watch counter and felt absolutely no desire at all to buy one. They have completely lost all their appeal to me. It's like the change came out of nowhere. No lead up, no slow draining away of my desire. Just gone. Thank you, Lord, for answering my prayers. You truly are an almighty, wonderful God. Thank you, thank you. What did I learn from that? I'm a very small writer. <laughs> yeah, I've been frugal since the day I was born. <laughs> I learned that God can change the desires of your heart. God can change the desires of my heart. Not just the wants, not just the things that we think we would like one day if we had enough money. God can change the desires of our hearts. What's your Tag Heuer? What is it in your life? What is it that you so wish that you had, that you've wished that you could have for quite a while? Or maybe you actually went and got it, and now you're wearing it, or driving it, or living in it. I don't know. But what's the Tag Heuer in your life? That thing that doesn't give you peace because it's in your life, either physically in your life or still a desire. I encourage you to give it to God. Say, Lord, please take this from me. I can't wait till Friday session, by the way. <laughs> we can't, I've got to not touch on some things that, that's coming on Friday. When you finally get all that you want, will you be happy? August last year, I was sitting on a flight. I don't know where I was going. It was Qantas. Flicking through the in-flight magazine. Here you go. Melinda reminded me last night that you guys wouldn't be able to see this from where you are. There it is. Some dodgy bit of a shack on the front cover there. <laughs> ah, they know how to get us, don't they? Looks pretty good. Looks pretty good. And I'm flicking through it. You know what's in these magazines. Double front page spread, Mercedes-Benz. I didn't put every page up on the screen. Tiffany & Co. Diamonds, Discovery Range Rover, George Jensen Jewelry, IWC Schaffhausen, Mazda. Thought that was a bit interesting. <laughs> uh, uh, okay, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> Ermine & Gildo Zegner, can't even say that. Ah, Targ Hoya, look at that. Chopard, I don't know, can't even say half the names of these. It just goes on and on and on, page after page after page of consumerism, of things that Satan wants us to fill our hearts with because we've got a hole there that hasn't been filled properly by God. And we think that if we can put that into that hole, any of these things into that hole, then we'll be happy, then we'll be satisfied. On about page 48... I came across this one, Bo Brummel. Can anybody tell me what it's an ad for? Can't see it properly? It says, perfectly matched, seriously committed, completely compatible. Bo Brummel introductions. 
Two young men, perfectly matched, seriously committed, completely compatible. It's an ad for a homosexual um, dating agency or you know, introductions agency in August's Qantas in-flight magazine. When I saw that, I went, dear God, what have we come to? And about a minute later, it hit me. If the guys on the left come to your church and they say, look, we'd like to be involved somehow in your church, don't know whether we can be deacons or elders or you know, lead a Sabbath school or something like that, um, how, you know, how could we be involved? You take it to the board, and what's the board's answer? Sorry. Sorry, guys, we can't. We can't do that. But if a guy comes in to your church driving the car, we make him the head elder. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. I don't even know where to go with that example. I don't know where to go with that illustration. I'm not justifying either of the ads in the magazine. But it hit me. We're all sinners in need of a saviour. That doesn't mean that we can all just automatically, regardless of our sins, get a job at church. But you know, we read yesterday on the screen, Ellen White said that our most earnest prayers should be given for those who have been blessed with prosperity because they are in the most dangerous spiritual stage of their life. Thank you to all the head elders out there who drive Mercedes for bearing with that and not jumping up. I know a few of you by name because you've been in other churches and you've come up to me afterwards and we've had a bit of a joke about it and uh, I, I appreciate your patience with me. But it's an illustration and I think it's a serious one. I think that in our society we have become so influenced, infiltrated by the world, we have become so absorbed in the world that we live in that we don't even see what's affecting us. You know, this week I'm only talking about materialism and, and the impact that it's had on my life. There's so many other aspects to spirituality. And so I'm just, I'm just touching on that one. But I think from a materialism point of view, from a consumerism point of view, we are so deep into it that we can't see the forest for the trees. I'm going to change tack. Let's take a, take a, a breather. Um, for those of you who weren't here yesterday... Uh, you might want to hand that around. I think some of you guys have already... If, you, if you're interested in getting a, uh, a newsletter on faith and finance, on affluence and spirituality, once a month, only 200 words, just put your name and email address down on there. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about this, about the, the book, you can see a book hanging over there on the side, just go and have a read through that table and if you get more yeses than noes, it might be worth you reading the book. Okay, now we'll keep rolling, on, rolling along. Let's go to our Bibles. You got your Bibles there? Let's pull them out. Let's get into it. We're going to, we're going to a, a pretty solid story. Mark 10, 
Mark 10, 17. And then uh, we'll see how far we get through there. Mark 10, 17. When I wrote the chapter in my book about this rich young ruler, I physically, I physically struggled. My, my hands physically went into claws and didn't want to type. I actually ended up writing that in my book and my editor took it out. He said, Julian, that's too, that's too personal. You don't need to put that in. But I had struggled with that rich young ruler story for so long and so many years that when it came time to actually opening my heart and sharing that story, my fingers didn't want to type. I like literally sat there with claws and it was just like, Lord, let's do this. And anyway, there's a chapter in the book on it. Kess, Kess Rain, um, sorry Kess if you're here, I'll, I'll just call you Kess because I can't remember the rest of your name, but Kess did a beautiful talk on Jesus and the rich kid in Connections a couple of nights ago. We know it. This, this rich young ruler was going out on the road. Jesus was out on the road. One came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus goes on and says, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? And Jesus lists five of the last six commandments. Does anyone know which of the last six he didn't list? Covetousness. <laughs> the rich young ruler said, I've done all this since my youth. Jesus hadn't listed covetousness. And Jesus came back, just one more thing. Just one more thing, sell all that you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. He went away sad. As Kessia so beautifully pointed out the other night, he went away saddened but not surrendered, convicted but not converted. And the distance between the saddened and the not surrendered and the convicted and the not converted was eternal life. So he went away. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. Why were the disciples astonished? Because they were blessed. Remember yesterday? Why were they blessed? Well, they must have been because they were being obedient. That was the logic. They were leaders. If those guys can't get into heaven, well, who can? The disciples were astonished, and Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I wish Jesus had said that there's something that the rich man can do. Because what, what did the rich young ruler want? He wanted to do something. What must I do? I wish that Jesus had said that if the rich man gives lots of money away, then that'll get him into heaven. If the rich man takes up all the church offices and is really active at church, that'll get him into heaven. But he didn't say that. It's a flat statement. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were greatly astonished and said amongst themselves, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And as Kess point, beautifully pointed out, are you with God? Are you with God? Because with God all things are possible. You know, when we go off on these mission trips to other parts of the world, 
and we come back and we report in our churches. You know, you, you get all the young people up or whoever it was on a flying build and they all come back and they, what's the one thing that they say every time in every church that you go to, in every report? We went there to be a blessing, but we were the ones who were blessed. It hit me a couple of years ago why that is. Because we go to help people who might be living in their slums, slums of poverty, slums of ill health, whatever it is. But we don't realise that we're coming from our slums of greed, our slums of affluence, our slums of selfishness. And when we go to help them, they help us. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's a two-way relationship. And that's the reason that we are so blessed. Because we go to these places and we see a spirituality. We see a closeness with God. We see an openness and a generosity that we don't experience very often back here in our society. The rich young ruler. Jesus said, sell all, give it to the poor and come follow me. The reason I battled that for so many years is because it was speaking to my heart. And I finally got to a point where I realised that that was Jesus talking to one person. It wasn't necessarily for me. And so I was able to leave it there, put it in a box and say, well, that was for that guy, but it's not for me. But then I kept reading. Sorry, my, my uh, change has gone to sleep here, guys. Thank you. And one more. There we go. Thank you. Luke 12, 33. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and nor moth destroys. Luke 12, 33. If you go to Luke 12 and see who he's talking to, he's actually talking to all of his disciples. Are you a disciple of Christ? Well, I had to ask myself that question. And not wanting to sell what I have and give it to the poor, I said, no, I'm not. That was those 12 guys. That wasn't for me. Jesus is at it again, two chapters later, Luke 14, 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Who was he talking to there? Go to Luke 14, you'll find he was talking to a great multitude. Am I a part of the great multitude? Oh, man. No, that was just them. Jesus was talking about coming and following him literally on the road. Then I get across to Acts 11. For a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples, the exact same word used in Luke 14, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Am I a Christian? I don't know whether you've joined those dots before. But it paints a pretty interesting picture when they all come together. My mate Soren Kierkegaard, who we saw in the, in the video at the start with the skipping stones in Copenhagen, he's known as the disturbing Dane. He was sort of the father of Christian existentialism. I don't even know what that means, but that's what he did. 
and he disturbed a lot of people. And one of his comments, after reading texts like this, Kierkegaard said this, The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. No wonder they call him the disturbing Dane. <laughs> Man. When we went to Adra, we went to work in Nepal. Had a fantastic time. There was a civil war on. It, it had its moments, you know, with security issues and all the rest of it. But we had a beautiful time working with beautiful people for a few years there with, the, with our boys. We got an got a email one day to say, just wondering if I could come and stay with you guys for a couple of weeks. I'm on R&R. And we said, yeah, come on over. And this, this young guy came over. He would have been about 30, I suppose. And he stayed with us for a couple of weeks. And this is his story. I won't give you his name. He was a Swiss air pilot. The youngest ever Swiss air pilot. He was doing very well. He was an engineer in the, for Swiss Air as well. Moving through the ranks incredibly fast. Had built up quite a few assets for himself in Switzerland and in other places. His marriage broke up. And he was at a bit of a loose end. Still working for Swiss Air, still doing the work. And he came across the director of, of ADRA Switzerland. At a, at a meeting, at a church lunch, I think it was, in Switzerland somewhere. And this guy said to him, what you need to do is you need to come and work for ADRA. Total change of life. Come and work for ADRA. And the guy went, whoa, that's a total change of life. Mm, let me think about that. So he went home and he prayed about it. Long story short, the guy sold everything he had except his bicycle. Gave all of the money away by choice, and became the ADRA director for North Korea. You can't go much further. The reason that he was having R&R with us in Nepal was not R&R for stress, it was R&R for nutrition. They let him out about every eight to ten weeks to go out and stock up on multivitamins and have some decent meals for two weeks. He was hardcore. He's currently translating my book into German, he and his wife. After North Korea, I caught up with him a couple of years ago by email, and I said, what have you been up to, man? He said, oh, well, after North Korea, I went to work for ADRA in Afghanistan. <laughs> I went, well, I guess that's going up in the world. <laughs> I then went to, I think the next place was uh, Morocco. Yep, no, Myanmar, Burma. Myanmar, yeah, well, that's sort of still going up in the world. That was a few years ago, so Myanmar was a different place to what it is today. And then he went to Morocco, and now he's back in Europe. Married, happily married. I want to tell you another story. I met a couple of guys who were farmers. I met them last year. They were farmers in Zimbabwe. One of the guys was the biggest farmer in Africa. That's not the biggest farmer in Zimbabwe. That's the biggest farmer in Africa, a continent. 
He had over a thousand staff on his farms and he ran completely mechanized farms. This guy had some farms. And his friend, who I also met at the same time, another successful farmer. Of course, we know what happened in Zimbabwe a number of years ago, the unrest. They lost everything. People came to their land, threatened them month after month, threatened to kill them, killed their neighbours, totally destroyed the community, kept threatening them, came and just did horrible things to the family and kicked them off their land. One of the guys I was talking to, they moved into town. They had no way of getting into town, so when I say they moved into town, they walked into town with nothing. They had enough money in what they would call their superannuation because of the inflation that had occurred, the rapid inflation in Zimbabwe. They had enough money in their superannuation account after farming for decades. They had enough money for him and his wife to go out for dinner, but they couldn't afford dessert. And that was it. Nothing left. They had a choice. They could flee, they could fight, or they could forgive. They chose to forgive. Today, they run a massive operation across Africa that is teaching the local people how to feed themselves on farms. The skills that God gave them in farming, they're now sharing for free with the poor of Africa. The reason I share those two stories as a follow-up to the rich young ruler is that when I meet people who have lost everything by choice or by bankruptcy or by war and have held on to God, they have a depth of spirituality that I've never seen anywhere else. Something about that process of what Jesus was asking that rich young ruler to do, there's something about going back to nothing except your faith in God that deeply, deeply impacts your heart. So the question is, do I have the faith to sell everything and give it all away? The answer is no. I don't have the faith to do that. I'm actually not even 100% convinced that right now that's what God wants me to do. I don't feel a conviction by the Holy Spirit that that's what God wants me to do right now. But what if we did? What if every Christian on the faith of the face of the earth sold everything that we had and gave it away? All of us. What impact would that have? We still have the PowerPoint there, guys. Thank you. Let's turn to Acts 4. Verses 32 to 37. This is the closest I have for an answer. Acts 4, 32 to 37. And then we'll go across to Acts 5. Acts 4, 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of how many hearts? Of one heart. The multitude, the many, were one. 
The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And what was the result? With great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all were possess- who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. We've got the great name there, the son of encouragement, Barnabas, son of encouragement, was there, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that's the example that they give. Of They describe one person to, to make it personal. And that's what he did. And then, of course, they go on to Ananias and Sapphira, who said that, you know, that was the amount that they sold the land for, but it wasn't. Let's go down now to uh, Acts 5, 12 to 16. If we could just have the slide back up there again, please, guys. Acts 5, thank you, 12 to to 16. Continuing power in the church. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Whoa! Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. In the chapter before that, Acts 3, I just want to finish with this. Acts 3. Verses 1 to 8. I call this the nothing everything principle. Nothing everything. Let's read it. Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms, as in asked for a donation. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. In the air-conditioned padded pew affluence of 2015, We can't honestly say, silver and gold have I none. But truth be told, nor can we say, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. I believe that our affluence, and I'm only only speaking from experience, from my personal experience, but I believe that our affluence is the greatest challenge to our personal spirituality, to our denominational spirituality, to our nation's spirituality, and maybe to your congregation's spirituality of any other thing in this world. It's interesting that in Revelation 3, Jesus spoke about the church of Laodicea, and we know full well 
but that's us. That they were rich and increased in goods, but really we weren't, and really we aren't. What was the solution yesterday? As our affluence goes up, our knees must go down. And down, and down, and down. Now Daniel prayed three times a day. In the Psalms, David said, Lord, seven, day, seven times a day I come before you. Some would say that we need to pray for the work, and I agree. But I'm learning slowly. God's getting through this thick head of mine. We need to pray for the work. But prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. If we're working without the prayer, if we're giving 0.05% of our time to prayer and the other 99.95% of our time to doing God's work, it's no wonder we celebrate when we get one baptism from a $20,000 evangelistic program. Prayer is the work. Thanks for your patience again today. As I said at the beginning, we preach best what we need most. And I encourage you, as I encourage myself, to open that conversation between your heart and God's heart about the blessings that he has given you. Not just material blessings, it could be blessings of talents, it could be blessings of some skill, it could be blessings of your family. You could have a beautiful marriage that's getting between you and God. You could, you could be a pop star evangelist and that's getting between you and God. It doesn't have to be a material blessing. But I just encourage each one of us to open that communication again with God on our knees and say, Lord, what would you have me, have me do? Like the rich young ruler, what must I do to be saved? I'm looking forward to Friday's meeting when we look at some of that. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I want to thank you for being here today. Lord, you know that I've been, as I've been sharing this message that you've given me, this message that I've just borrowed from you for an hour. Lord, you know there's been times as I've been sharing that I've been kicking against it. And Lord, you know that there are people here who have been kicking against it as well. Lord, please soften my heart. Please soften each of our hearts. Please continue to be long-suffering and patient with us. Lord, please don't let us go until we are safely in your arms for eternity, is my prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia all one word 
www.org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.